Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now we say that we want our children to have positive experiences and feel protected as they grow up. Now, how can we teach our children secure attachment without knowing the meaning and the ways that we can indirectly hold an example. So to teach us about secure attachments and a different way of approaches on how to teach a children secure attachment, in the studio today is play therapist and scholar, Dr. Kate Renshaw. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio today, Kate. You're welcome. It's great to be in the studio with you. <laughs> now, as a play therapist, as well as a consultant for mental health in education, what's your role in helping children build secure attachments? Oh, I've got lots of ways I can help children build secure attachments. Um, one way through play therapy is that sometimes children might have wobbles with their attachments mm-hmm. or they may have experienced a lot of insecurity. And I know we're going to talk about that today. Yep. And so they may come to play therapy in order to rework and refirm up that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I might directly be working with children to help them establish or reestablish security in their attachment mm-hmm. and supporting the parents to, uh, with recommendations of how they can also align and be my ally Mm -hmm. and us work together in an alliance to help the child. Mm -hmm. Um, so the parent would be provided with tips and skills as well. Yeah. Okay. And during your experience, what has been one of the most common frustrations that parents have sort of expressed or even children have expressed when sort of trying to build and the lack of building of that secure attachment that they hold? I think one of the biggest um, difficulties that I've noticed is children that have perhaps been within the out-of-care home system. Mm -hmm. So they may have been taken into care very young and they may have been fostered or adopted. Um, Those children experience lots of attachment disruption Mm -hmm. and their caregivers um, experience a lot of um, complexities in providing those secure attachment messages. Okay. So I think that's probably some of the most challenging work. Okay. That's such a great introduction to our topic today. But before we discuss it even further, I would love to get to know some of your interests as well as some of your passions for playing our show's favorite icebreaker. Now to start off with, what is a movie that you would recommend for our viewers today? I'm actually a real film nut, so that's really hard to choose a movie. However, I have been taking a nostalgic journey into 90s cinema with my now teenage daughter. Okay. So uh, Point Break and 10 Things I Hate About You have been some firm favourites for the youth of today. Okay. And I've very much been reliving my youth too. (laughs) No, 10 Things I Hate About You, I think you can never go wrong with it. No. Can never find anything wrong with it. I, I don't. I love watching that. I think every time I feel like I need to have a little jump up, I need to find a little interest and passion back again. I think that's the movie I always turn to. Absolutely. And look, we won't um, kind of hypothesize any attachment 
styles there in no. those movies. <laughs> That's not. <laughs> um, but there is always relationship dynamics that are interesting oh, for yes. us to navigate. Yes, especially seeing that it's a remake of uh, William Shakespeare's most famous movie is like film as well I think that's such a great um way to sort of interest a lot of people who didn't know a lot about William Shakespeare and a lot of his plays that he's written so I I didn't actually know that it was a remake of that ah. to begin with so as I got older I found out and I was like okay well that's actually very I didn't really know that it was based on William Shakespeare's play yeah clever yeah no it's really a great idea mm. now how about the most recent book that you've read that's also a tricky one because I read a lot of um, nonfiction. Oh, okay. Um, my husband would famously joke that, you know, in the morning, mid-morning, if we're not working, mm -hmm. um, you know, what what trauma-based article or chapter have you read yeah. already today? Okay. Um, so I do read a lot of um, journal articles. Okay. Um, and currently really enjoy a lot of the work of... Um, Gabor Maté. Okay. I can also listen to him for days too. Oh, wow. So okay. either listening uh, or reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you learned a lot from, uh, like, a lot of what you do professionally now from, uh, like, uh, listening to him or reading about a bit about him as well? Or I think what I've learned over my years of um, studying, and I did frighteningly add up the years of study I've done recently, and it was a lot. Okay. Um, but what I've learned from Gabor is um, I think he really humanises many of the theories and topics that I learnt about and I practice in my therapeutic work with children and families. And he not only gives a personal connection for himself, mm -hmm. but he also really humanises um, difficulties experienced by adults such as addiction okay. um, and contextualises that in terms of sense of attachment, uh, interpersonal neurobiology, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. So okay. I think he just really resonates with a lot of my learnings and brings it to life in a, in a, in a nice, nice way. Okay. Now, other than him, could you name a podcast that really stands out to you? Well, um, I'm probably a little biased because um, I have um, a lovely friend, Mandy Hose, who is one of the co-hosts of Two Peas in a Podcast. Um, oh, okay. And I spoke on their podcast um, a little while back and they have a really beautiful online community for parents um, and their 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 pea parents and pea shoots out of the kids. Okay, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I find I resonate a lot with their community and mm -hmm. I love hearing their stories and the stories of parents mm -hmm. that have had lots of different parenting experiences. Oh, wow. No, that's such a great... I love parenting podcasts that really take it a different way as well rather than just like, okay, this is what we're going to talk about, this is it. I love ones that sort of interact a whole lot more with a whole lot of people. Yes. So I think, like, like I said, parenting is, is a community all in its own. Absolutely. And definitely need as much help as you can get and as much experience and advice. And um, I think sharing stories as well is a big part of being a parent from what I know. I'm not a parent myself and I love to say that every time on the show. <laughs> but I, like, I have a lot of friends who are parents and I share a lot of their stories or I share my being a child experiences and knowing what that is. So I think sharing stories is a big part of raising a child, I think. Absolutely. And our narratives are, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell our children mm -hmm. form part of our histories. So yes. 
course, they're very rich and important. Um, and this particular podcast has built its own little kind of online community of support too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's pretty special. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. Now, do you have a person that you find yourself looking up to either professionally or personally? Oh, I think that's a, again, there's so many things to consider in that question. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably, uh, I probably have two role models in terms of my um, professional research mm-hmm. and learning and practice. And one of those, I was lucky enough to train under Dr. Virginia Ryan in uh, England as a play therapist. Okay. Uh, and she was very influential in um, working systemically, not just with children, but with parents mm-hmm. and educators. Okay. And um, also Emeritus Professor Karen Stegnetti, who I um, undertook my PhD studies with here in Australia oh, wow. as well. Okay. And she was really interested in children who struggled to learn to play. Mm-hmm. And that was what her PhD research and ongoing uh, work and writing has been about, um, supporting children that may require and families may require extra support around play mm-hmm. and helping them unlock the power of play and yep. narrative yep. and storytelling okay. in order to support their development. Oh, wow. No, that's really interesting. I think mm. I think we sort of, we neglect stories, I think, a lot in when it comes to giving advice and sharing. Usually it's like you hear, hear parents, like I hear a lot of my friends wearing like, this is step by step what they're supposed to do rather than yeah. looking at case studies as a whole or looking at um, what a previous parent sort of experienced. And I always tell them like, stop making notes, stop <laughs> like doing dot points as to what this person academically says, because there's a lot of things that works on theory, works on paper, but doesn't usually work in practice. So um, this me now hosting a podcast, they're like, okay, so who do I go to? What do I do? So now it's like a lot (laughs) of me giving parenting advice now. And I'm like, okay, what do I do now? (laughs) And sometimes you can be a signposter too. Oh, yes. That can be really nice to be able to signpost to people that you know of or you know, might have that expertise to support those people. Yes. Um, Actually, it's funny because writing case studies has actually been something that I've enjoyed doing in the past to try and translate theory into practice. Yeah. And so it is actually real world based and interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see that application and you go, I resonate with that because it's it's real and it's not just a theory on the page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of like I like it because I think especially it doesn't look at the perfect parent. Mm. It looks at a natural parent, an actual a person who's uh, like I've had in the past with a guest called the good enough parent where they're oh, yeah. just doing enough. They're doing what's what they're what they're able to do, what they're capable of doing rather than just being like, OK, in an ideal, perfect parent world, this is what's supposed to go down. Mm. So, no, it's a really interesting to sort of look at case studies. And I love sort of advising, not advising, but sort of like telling my friends, you know, look at another parent or like go to parent groups because it's I think it's such a great way of sort of building that community. And I think yep. community is a big part, like I've said. Yeah. Now, during your academic pursuit, do you have a certain course that has really resonated you mm. and sort of built your view on what you do now? Um, yes. Probably a couple, but I think my biggest one would be when I um, intensively studied filial therapy, which is a family type of play therapy okay. where play therapists regard the parents as the most important people in the children's life. Mm-hmm. And with 
specialized training and supervised practice, the parents actually get to be the therapeutic agent instead of the therapist. So learning that and practicing that has really unlocked and informed everything I've done since. Mm -hmm. So it led me to work more systemically with children in group therapy. It also led me to my PhD research with teachers and looking at um, the everyday world of the child Mm -hmm. as how much can we input Mm -hmm. um, ideal or optimal or good enough relationships and relational messaging, like secure messaging all day. Okay. Oh, so it's like putting into a real world day-to-day sort of activity rather than just this is, you have to sit down and this actually This is your therapy time. Yeah. 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 Oh, no, so it's amazing. taking, um, it's opening the door of the therapy room. Yeah. Um, and not keeping our knowledge and skills closed behind those confidential spaces. There's yeah. always a time and space for confidential therapy work when needed, mm-hmm. but there's lots of potential for those, th- that knowledge and skills to be taken into everyday mm-hmm. interactions okay. and parenting practices. No, wow. That's an amazing, that's an amazing sort of course and view into a different way of therapy as well. I think it unlocks a whole different way of just, I think I've said this before we started recording the difference between sitting down and talking therapy and play and filiotherapy. There's a huge difference in there as well. Yeah, very much so. And that's what led me to connect with play therapy Mm -hmm. in that it is um, the process and the story might be unfolding in the play Mm -hmm. rather than having to think too cognitively about it. It allows us to uh, tap into yeah. different parts of ourselves to express ourselves. I oh, know that's amazing. Now, I know that everyone has a very different definition mm. into parenting <laughs> and what the role of a parent is supposed to be. What would your definition into parenting and its, its importance yeah. be to you? Well, it's a great question because I think a lot of my definition of parenting is actually informed by my training as a play and filial therapist. And I actually completed um, that training kind of around the time I was becoming a parent myself. Oh, wow. So um, they kind of all go hand in hand. And so for me, I really think about this idea of human development as a process. Okay. And that parents are um, in a relationship with their children mm-hmm. um, and that it is that kind of, you know, when we're in a relationship with someone, we aren't necessarily in control or in charge, mm-hmm. but we're with them and we're along with them in the journey. We're guiding them when they're needing guidance. We're supporting them and comforting them and we're celebrating them as well. Okay. So there's a lot that goes into that and I can see why lots of people have a different definition of Mm-hmm. parenting, but I think it is a collaborative relationship. Um, and yeah, as I said, the, the word filial actually is the Latin word for, um, of son and daughter. So it is oh. very connected to parenting and families. Okay. No, I think I've, that's the first time I've ever heard that definition Yeah, and the way that you sort of perceive it. And I think that's such a great way because you do forget that it is a relationship, that it is that interaction that is full of love and nurture and also sort of some sort of um, balance between yourself and someone else. Yeah, they're a they're an individual that's growing right in front of us. Yeah. Um, and they're separate to us. Yeah. But we're also connected and our story's connected. Exactly. No, I think that's such a great, that's such a great way. I actually never thought about it like that. Mm. So no, that's perfect. <laughs> now, 
during the journey of being an expecting parent, there's a lot of lessons that a lot of people sort of mention. Mm. What's one thing that you would like expecting parents to be aware of during their transition into parenting? I think the big one for me is, and sometimes people ask me, what age group do you work with? And I always say, I work from conception. Okay. Um, and actually, I just watched a beautiful documentary last week called In Utero, which is actually bringing to life how parenting and the process of parenting actually starts from the point of conception. Okay. And that we can be interacting with and starting to think about the secure relational or attachment messaging Mm -hmm. or even the playfulness Mm -hmm. that we might um, incorporate into that pregnancy. Okay. So that would be the first kind of, yeah, from that point that I think sometimes it can be about often there's a lot of focus on being pregnant, mm-hmm. the the act and the medicalness of being pregnant, yeah, and also the the preparation for the birth, mm-hmm. um, and then I think the other little missing piece is once the baby's born, then what? Yeah, right. Yeah, um, the build up to that. Whereas for me, some of the ways of um, being able to playfully and relationally start to bond with or connect with a child mm-hmm. in utero that parents and caregivers can complete mm-hmm. actually can also set them up for those first one to two years of life too. Okay. So it can help with that transition period because you're practicing it mm-hmm. to start with yeah. when they're quite contained, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like this, but there isn't actually anything here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're contained, they're in there. Um, and there's lots that um, lots of research that backs up just how much mm-hmm. children um, perceive and can interact with um, lots of different sensory okay. and sound particularly. Yeah rhythm, movement, there's lots we can do. Oh, yeah, I've actually heard about, I think I I see a lot of film and a lot of movies about the different ways that parenting, that sort of prepare, like they listen to Bach or classical music or start talking to the baby. And is that sort of that would you include as play therapy as well? I would include that as kind of playful recommendations. Okay. So when I work with families in filial therapy, Um, I like to focus on all of the children. And so Mm. if they are expecting a child, then we would also think about how the skills and knowledge could Mm -hmm. also apply to that child. So, yes, it could be about musical choices or um, spending time connecting with or thinking about talking with the baby, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, And hilariously, you know, I think as a therapist and parent myself, some of these things I see having practised myself Mm -hmm. and then I see the result of that a little bit. So my husband really wanted my children to be obsessed with the Beatles. Okay. And that was achieved at at almost a, um, I don't know, a a cellular level. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So it became their essence in a way. (laughs) They like somehow know all the back catalogues. And I think that was from a lot of that in utero Beatles listening. Wow. So that's, I didn't know that that that's how deep it can go. And that's how much, like you see, I think I hear a lot of you play Bach and then they're sort of relaxed, they're calm and things like that, but you never see it as a huge like connection between you and the child before they even come into the world and join you. So no, that's such a great way to sort of interact with the child and have that first interaction. And at least, at least we know it's true. At least we know there's like, (laughs) there are some facts that you see in movies where it's like, is that really how it happens? Yeah. So I think, um, I think I see my mom every time we watch, um, like there's this one episode in Friends when 
Rachel's giving birth and like the amount of screaming and my mom's like that doesn't really happen that much it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't scream that much so then sometimes you're like oh it's over exaggerated sometimes it's true so now at least we know that that part is very true when it comes to the interaction between a baby and the parent before they even come into the world so yeah. no that's that's great and sometimes we see these things intuitively have happened in parenting practices mm-hmm. and then we see science yeah. backing it up. Oh, wow. And okay. so neuroscience has really um, provided the scientific backing for a lot of these things that parents may have intuitively known and therefore may have been incorporated into film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and that's what I really liked about this documentary I watched yeah. um, because it was actually showing us that science and showing how the, as the brain develops from the bottom up, um, those stimuli, the sensory stimuli and the relationships, mm-hmm. like, you know, we can think about on the flip side, domestic violence or family violence can also be transmitted into the womb. Yeah. Okay. So we can think about it on both sides of the coin too. Yeah. So what are we protecting that unborn child from? Mm-hmm. And what are we also trying to support in terms of that optimal growth and development? Okay. Wow. No, that's amazing. Now we talk about, I think we're going to talk a lot about secure attachment. Yeah. <laughs> um, but beforehand, I know that there's a lot of different definitions and I'm trying to find a huge, a really direct definition of what insecure attachment is. Mm. So can you explain from your point of view what insecure attachment would be? It is uh, in a way a complex idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, searching for that simplicity. And I think for me, um, I talk about the two sides of the coin there before Mm -hmm. and I see that very much as making sense of attachment theory in general, that we have, you know, the the optimal, which is the sense of secure attachment. And I refer to it as a sense of attachment rather than necessarily attachment styles. And then this other side of some insecurity or um, kind of quite difficulties with the sense of attachment. Okay. So an insecure sense of attachment, therefore, for me, would be anything that is disrupting a child um, or a person mm-hmm. from feeling that they are themselves worthy of being loved. Okay. That they um, find the world to be hard to trust and feel safe in mm-hmm. and that they find relationships hard to trust and feel safe in. Okay. So at the core... That would be probably my yeah. height definition. Okay. The very general. The, the very nutshell yep. definition of insecure sense of attachment. Okay. Yeah. And so with that, does that sort of resonate a lot when it comes to a, a young age or does, can that be felt within a young age or can that be um, observed at a young age as well and seeing that the child feels a little bit insecure when during their sense of attachment? Yeah. So attachment lasts a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so we are all in a state of a sense of attachment and yeah. we might have different senses of attachment with different people in our lives. And so um, in those very early bonding phases with children, mm-hmm. often um, attachment is happening for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so you are starting to see attachment behaviours happening. Yeah, And so we can start observing from very young. Okay. Part of my training actually involved um, a year's worth of the Tavistock method of infant observation where I went to a family's home once a week and observed a baby for an hour Mm -hmm. from about the age of three months. 
And even from that early age, Mm. I was able to start to tune in and observe and notice the attachment behaviours that were signalling to the parent, Mm -hmm. um, I um, have a need or I need to be closer to you. So proximity, need, um, or and, and what that need might be. Yeah. And okay. so parents are then trying to tune into that. Okay. So they're not always directly, like I think a lot of people, they sort of assume that parents automatically know exactly what a child needs and things like that. So there's still a lot that parents will have to learn after the child is born, just sort of understanding what their needs are. Because I think when I'm, at least from a third person point of view, when I'm sort of observing um, a lot of my friends, they sort of automatically know that when the child's crying or the sudden cries that sort of comes in, that this is exactly what they're needing. But not a lot of parents are really attuned to sensing that automatically. Well, it's a relationship. So um, often on the day a child's born, mm-hmm. we don't have the information yeah. to know that yet. Okay. It takes a certain amount of crying yeah. and a certain amount of fussing or signalling a need mm-hmm. for the parent to then know. And yes, they of course know more than you walking in going, oh, I didn't know that cry meant that they needed to be changed yeah. or that they wanted to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's a certain amount of time that it takes to establish that because it is a relationship. Yeah. But okay. once that's established, and as you said, many parents intuitively connect with their children. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think uh, around 60% of people in mm-hmm. the world are fairly securely attached. Okay. And so perhaps that gives us a guide of those that are feeling quite comfortable in new parenthood mm-hmm. um, and may have had, because attachment is also can be cyclical across families. Okay. We can interrupt the transmission if it's yeah. not ideal. Yeah. But often we are parented and we take on some of those styles of parenting Mm -hmm. and therefore uh, the way we attach with our children in early childhood from the way we were also parented as well. Mm -hmm. So we might have that intuition and it might be on the right path and so we might be able to tune in. Yeah. But things can get in the way of that. Lots of things can get in the way of that um, by choice or not by choice. Okay. So that's where things can get tricky. Yeah. Okay. And so what are some of the signs that parents sort of need to know if they're trying to understand if a child is a little bit insecure with their sense of attachment? Yeah. I think it's an interesting one because I actually like to really, um, in my mind, group children in different ages and stages across childhood. Okay. It helps me to think about different attachment messaging because the messaging of an infant... Um, up to the age of 18 months is going to be different to a toddler mm-hmm. and that's going to be different to a primary age children yeah. and then teenager and adulthood. And then we give off different attachment messages as adults too yeah. to other adults. Okay. okay? Yeah. In our romantic partnerships yes. and other relationships. So one of the things I like to do with parents and teachers that I work with is help them introduce them to some of those different um, messages across those age groups. Okay. So in terms of insecurity in the infancy time, Mm -hmm. you know, we might be thinking about things like um, that an infant might be um, kind of like not really willing or wanting to greet a parent when they come back. They might have been separated. Okay. The parent comes back in the room and they're kind of like, 
yeah, not really into it. Yeah. yeah, a bit indifferent. Okay. Um, they could also become highly distressed. Okay. When the parent leaves, and they're also not soothed when the parent comes back. Ah, uh, okay. So there's a few the things that we can start to think about mm-hmm. as certain indicators that we may be looking at. You know. Uh, is there some difficulties in this relationship that mm-hmm. could benefit from support? Mm-hmm. And in those early stages of attachment, that is often about supporting the parents to be able to tune in and to hear the messages mm-hmm. and hear what the behaviours are trying to say. Because that's often okay. when it's not intuitive, Yeah, this parenting gig, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty complex. Um, when it's not intuitive, um, helping parents to kind of decipher the code yeah. is part of supporting the the security of attachment to build. Mm-hmm. So the coming different ages, I mm-hmm. guess. So it's going to be different when it comes to primary ages because they're a little bit able to speak about how they're feeling. And yep. so what would be some of the signs if they weren't able to sort of analyze it themselves and sort of speak out, what would be some of the signs that you could sort of notice that they're not really... Um, secure when it comes to their attachment? Yeah. So uh, insecure attachment messaging in the school years might look like um, one of the big ones that I think parents do notice Mm -hmm. is um, when they're having difficulty with separating to go to school. So that's kind of people refer to it as separation anxiety. Okay. They might be terrified of being apart from their parent. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one that I think many people recognise. I think some of the ones that we don't always readily recognise is thinking about if children are experiencing difficulties in their peer friendships um, or if they're able to be with others in a relationship that's uh, very kind of collaborative, right? Okay. So, and also how are these children, are they having difficulties taking direction or um, having the teacher provide them with care Yeah. or are they kind of struggling with that? Okay. So um, there are a couple of ways we can start to pick up some insecurities in their sense of attachment with others in relationship. Mm-hmm. One of the big ones that we talk about in school is self-esteem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Self-esteem, when we look at the essence of that, is trusting ourselves to be worthy of being loved and good enough in the world. Okay. To be of value. Okay. And so the essence of that actually comes right back to our sense of attachment. Ah, wow. Okay. So a lot of it when it comes to teenagers, for example, it can be Mm -hmm. built up, sort of built up insecure attachment as well that you don't really notice. And until they get to a teenage stage where they're not really wanting to pursue relationships or to build on friendships and wanting to are okay. Is it, are they okay sitting by themselves or is it a completely different um, aspect to it as as well, where they're still not okay to sit by themselves? Yeah. So the teenagers, um, as you said, these things can build over time. Okay. And often when I work with children and I might kind of get all of the information that comes in when you are meeting with a child. Yeah. Um, and I can often translate into, I, I'm kind of wondering if there could be some difficulties and gaps that are, are under here yeah. that the child's been kind of making do with and carrying on. But when we kind of open it up and go, wow, we could really support in there. Yeah. So sometimes teenagers might have that attachment need that may be something that's built over time. Okay. 
They also may have, something may have happened that's given them a wobble around that. So they may have been the target of a bully. Mm -hmm. They may have had a difficulty with a friendship that's really destabilised them. Mm -hmm. Their parents might have separated, which has caused an attachment disruption. Yep. So all of those things can impact on self-esteem too. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's quite complex. I think the older we get, the more complex. Yeah. Although... Babies are very complex too, but there's a lot of complexity in the teenage years. It's a bit of a melting pot. But I think teenagers that are actually comfortable to be alone, Mm -hmm. um, and I I don't mean alone like a mushroom in the dark, right? Um, I actually put a light tunnel in my teenager's room so there's no chance of being a mushroom, Um, an actual light tunnel. Um, However, if if someone can be alone with themselves, they might enjoy reading or they might enjoy art, playing mm-hmm. the piano. That's probably a, a, a sense of secure attachment message that we're receiving. Okay. okay. So it's a little, it's not as, oh, they're by themselves. It means they don't like being around people. It could be just they enjoy time by themselves or they enjoy yeah. spending, doing hobbies by themselves, like learning different things. And I think we're sort of, yeah. when it comes to teenagers, I feel like we a lot of, we always say oh they have to be social they have to always go out around people they have to they have to have a lot of friends or you sort of have that expectation that they do lots of expectations so (laughs) how what are some of the risk factors if they don't sort of have that secure attachment um or they don't really find a little bit of answers towards how to build that secure attachment from the ages that you sort of do realize that they are struggling with being secure in themselves? Yeah, it's a very, in a way, very complex question just because of the different um, ages and stages of attachment mm-hmm. um, across our lifespan. But, I mean, when we think about early intervention support, we're actually thinking about supporting um, parents-to-be and new parents mm-hmm. um, that we may know already that are at risk of um, transmitting insecure sense of attachment because of their own experiences. Okay. So they may have experienced adversity. So that's one way of looking at um, that part of it. Mm-hmm. And then all the way along we can then look at um, what points, what indicators might um, put children at risk mm-hmm. and then what are the long-term outcomes of that. One of the most important studies, it's actually called the most important um um, I'm trying to think of the exact, um, um, the most important public health study okay. that no one's ever heard of yeah. is um, about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. I okay. don't know if you've heard about ACEs before. No, I don't think I have. There you go. There go. No <laughs> one's heard of it. But in um, 1998, uh, this obesity clinic in the US mm-hmm. um, with uh, Dr. Felitti actually discovered that people that were coming in that were finding it really hard to keep their weight off and had lots of um, other medical conditions like cancer and heart disease, Um, when they did lots of intake um, consults, they realised that there was a commonality of early life adversity Mm -hmm. and childhood adversity that was predisposing these adults to lifelong, not just mental health and not just relationship, but actually physical and medical risk factors for increases in heart disease, cancer, um, risk-taking behaviours, drug Mm -hmm. and alcohol addiction, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Okay. 
So for me, when I think about that, we know what the 10 core ACEs are, the adversities that children may experience. And some of them will be familiar to us like family violence, Mm -hmm. all of the different types of abuse and neglect, not just physical, emotional is as difficult and problematic for children as physical, Mm -hmm. um, sexual abuse, all of those different types of things, um, parents that might really struggle with their own mental health, Mm -hmm. parents that might be imprisoned, Mm -hmm. um, unexpected separations or losses from caregivers. So we know the really key risk factors. Okay. We also know um, how to ameliorate or heal. Mm -hmm. So we've also got PCEs, positive childhood experiences, that we can actually, if we identify these risk factors that may cause insecure sense of attachment or may kind of destabilise a previously secure sense of attachment, we can actually come in and provide or ramp up the amount of positive childhood experiences as a way of um, fostering and hopefully preventing Mm -hmm. those longer term, quite difficult outcomes across the lifespan. Okay. Wow. So there's a lot of... um so when it comes to sort of having those risk factors, there's a lot of things that parents can sort of will need to be aware of before they're even able to provide some sort of support to a child. Yeah. So being aware of what risk factors are, yeah. because then if something does happen, because life happens. Yeah. yeah. So say if a parent does go to jail, mm-hmm. then knowing that actually this might be a point to tap into additional support or resources mm-hmm. or to think about those positive childhood experiences. Those positive childhood experiences, we can kind of get them in our every day mm-hmm. if we know what they are. So they're things like liking school, having a teacher that cares about you, mm-hmm. having good friends. Mm-hmm. But when we can know what they are and make sure that children are getting them as much as they can. Yep. Um, and that's kind of what connects things with my research because my research is really thinking about we don't always know the children that have suffered from adversity mm-hmm. in schools. Teachers won't always know the children that may be a little insecure or starting to have wobbles or, or ruptures in relationships yeah. with themselves or others. And so being able to provide these positive childhood experiences every day, all the time, as much as possible, Mm -hmm. actually is a potential safeguard Mm. um, and it can counter some of those ill effects in later life. Okay. So it's amazing because I had this episode on resilience previously, on child resilience and how to sort of establish their resilience. Mm -hmm. But then I'm also also thinking like, okay, how how much can a child take? We say that kid is strong. But you also think about the risk factors that come on with the resilience as well when it comes to low self-esteem and being insecure, being um, non-committal later on in life as well. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting when you talk about like, a lot of the trying to find the good that outweighs some of the negatives as well. So they, when they think about their childhood, they're not really thinking about all the negatives they're thinking about. They could be thinking about the um, the one teacher that was there for them throughout their entire primary school life or the friendships that they made and still have to this day. So you think about all of the good that sort of can outweigh the negatives and get them to focus a bit more on those rather than just thinking, okay, I went through a lot and this is how I pushed through that. Yeah. And I think um, resilience is um, 
intrinsically connected mm-hmm. with self-esteem and our view of safety in the world. Yeah. So they are definitely interconnected. Yeah. Um, and and as you, you know, as you said, that kind of um, it's taking that balanced view mm-hmm. and sometimes we can in society there's a lot of at times toxic positivity where we're always yep. wanting to be happy and things to be good and you might say to someone Dina might say how are you and they might say I'm really terrible mm-hmm. and you might be like I don't even know what to do with that yeah. um, but actually being able to be real and genuine people mm-hmm. uh, also helps fuel our sense of self as worthy of being loved even on our most unlovable days. Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah. So that's also connected with our resilience. Yep. So we're unpicking the onion and the onion's pretty complex in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that job of parenting, when we think about it, there's a lot for us to consider and um, think about the ways that we navigate situations with our children. Mm -hmm. Are we allowing them to feel, deeply feel and experience the more challenging emotions to sit with? Mm -hmm. Is it okay if they've had a tough day at school or or do we kind of gloss over it and go, it'll be okay, tomorrow will be better? Yeah. So how do we, how do we empathically say, you know, oh gosh, that sounds tough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And when we're in that parenting relationship where we're with the child and we're focusing on the process in the day-to-day, not the end product of an adult at the other end of childhood. Yeah. That can sometimes allow us to slow things down and be in the moment. Mm-hmm. And every moment is an opportunity yeah. to provide that potentially positive relational message. Mm-hmm. And the positive relational message doesn't have to be a positive message because yeah. it can be Actually, even when you're really dysregulated and screaming and finding things overwhelming, mm-hmm. I'm here and I love you mm-hmm. and I care and I'm not going anywhere. Okay. So it's that validation to sort yeah. of promote that security and say that even if everything goes wrong, yep. you know that I've got your back. Absolutely. And when we yeah. think about the idea of trust, mm-hmm. so um, a, a quite a well-known developmental psychologist, Eric Erickson, talked about that very first stage of attachment, which aligns with attachment theory called um, trust versus mistrust. Okay. And so this is about how much can a, a, a child trust that we will always have their back. Mm-hmm. And so when I work with children that have experienced less than ideal caregiving mm-hmm. and they may be in out-of-home care, mm-hmm. they're often testing this. Okay. So foster children or adoptive children might be testing like, how much do you actually care about me? Mm-hmm. Um, can I make you kind of leave? Yeah. And that is that push me, pull me attachment dynamic. Okay. And so part of that dynamic is how do we still stay connected like a rubber band? Mm-hmm. If there's a rupture, how yep. do we repair? Okay. No, that's that's really interesting because I think growing up, I always heard, I think from my dad, I always heard that, okay, shake it off. It's fine. You're fine. And that's like, that's his way of trying to motivate things like, like things are okay. Everything is okay. You're going to be, we're going to be fine. We're all going to be okay. Even like when, um, during childhood, when my family was going through adversity and trying to like find a job and not him not having a job for a certain amount of time there was that huge like okay I'll be gonna be okay as a family and then there was that reassurance where you're like shake it off we're all good you don't have to think about it and I think like it built 
for me, at least, I was sort of like thinking about that recently. And I was mm-hmm. talking about that with a friend recently. And we were talking about the effect that that had being like, okay, now we've just romanticized <laughs> how much of things were not going our way and how how it was okay, but was it really okay? And we never really dealt with it as a family. And I have that conversation with my dad now now and again when we talk about um, the different messages that he sort of enlisted. And he was like, I just wanted you to know that everything's going to be okay and that you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. At the same time, it didn't it didn't take away the fact that we were worrying about it at the same time. So it was like, as good as the message was, Mm. it wasn't the greatest way to sort of say it to a child with anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a really hard thing in in parenting because at the time, and that goes back to that good enough, Mm -hmm. as parents, we're always trying to do the best we can with what we know on the day. Yeah. Um, And we often learn more or, or... or seek more knowledge as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the shake it off, it kind of reminds me a little bit of a cathartic release. Yeah. So although perhaps it wasn't owning and validating the worry, it mm-hmm. might have been kind of promoting the 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 releasing of the worry a yeah. little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I can see I can see some interesting components to that. But I think it's actually really I find it fascinating and extraordinary to support parents in filial therapy to learn about being able to validate more difficult emotions Mm -hmm. and that realisation for parents that often that is actually can feel quite different to the way we might have been navigating things. Um, And it's something that drew me into the world of psychology and art therapy and play therapy was I I had some similar experiences myself in terms Mm -hmm. of those messages of, you know, we have to be tough, we have to be resilient, we can push on and absolutely we can. But also there's also um, strength of leaning into in certain moments mm-hmm. the difficulties and owning them as that complex part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. The human experience is holistic. Yeah. It's not all uniformed. So it can't all be happy. Yeah. And if it was all happy, I have this debate with my now teenage son because he's a little bit of a philosopher. I'm like, do we know if it was always summer, would we love summer? Because if we don't have the other seasons, mm-hmm. how do we know those experiences? So if we're happy all the time, mm-hmm. do we really feel genuine, true happiness all the time? Or is it the sadness and the struggles that allow us to really celebrate that joy? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a that's a great philosophy, philosophical <laughs> question to sort of keep asking. I know. Is um self-proclaimed self-philosopher as well. So I can imagine how that answer would go. <laughs> yes, he he definitely is. Um teaching me lots about that introspection <laughs> yep. of okay. the human condition. Well, great. That's a that is a mouthful in itself to be able to even just think about that and think about the answer to that as well, whether we want to be do we want to be always happy or do we mm. want to sort of express or feel different ways as well. So no, that's a very interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when looking at the difference between secure and insecure attachment, what would be some of the core differences that you sort of would notice and visibly notice between the differences? Um, I think I always like to think about this again, developmentally. So if we're thinking about infants, mm-hmm. we're thinking about infants that um, feel very um, attuned 
to by their parents. Mm -hmm. They might signal a need um, and that need is met. Um, The parents are close in physical proximity. They might be at the same eye level, Mm -hmm. so they're really tuned in. Um, And there's this kind of, I call it the beautiful dance, like it's like a sensitive dance in the relationship. There's this flow Mm -hmm. and they're kind of like in sync. Okay. Um, This allows them as they grow older to be ready to explore the world. So then toddlers um, might then feel confident when they start walking to move away from their parent and explore the world. Oh, okay. Okay, so that's called a secure base. Okay. So establishing that um, security in their relationship with their parent initially Mm -hmm. sets up this base from which the child can explore the world. And the word, the word explore is another way to talk about learning. So mm-hmm. we can also think about that in an education context too. Yep. That okay. a teacher can become a safe, trusted relationship or a secondary attachment figure. Yep. And in the schooling years, the child being comfortable and feeling that they trust their teacher in their relationship, they trust the environment safe, mm-hmm they can then explore or learn. Okay. So it is um, Mary Ainsworth who worked with John Bowlby. Many people will know John Bowlby is the the father of attachment figure and I like to say Mary Ainsworth's the mother. Okay. (laughs) Um, That um, she was really interested in this idea of the secure base Mm -hmm. and she did a lot of research around that and seeing children um, go off from the secure base and come back to the secure base. Mm-hmm. The secure base welcomes children back when they might need their feelings organised. Okay. So if a toddler falls over and starts crying, mm-hmm. go, oh, goes back yeah. to the secure base and the parent says, oh, you fell down, ouch, that might have hurt. Yeah. And comforts the child and the child's ready to go back at playgroup and play with the Play-Doh now. They're ready to go. Yeah. Okay. okay. So there's some examples of security Mm-hmm. So we can always look at what the opposite is in each of those cases. Yeah. Um, and security in the um, school years means a child feels comfortable to come to school. Yeah. They're not struggling to come in the school gate. Okay. They are happy to be separated from their parents. Mm-hmm. They know there's a caregiver that's going to be tuned into them and responsive when they get back home. Yeah. And available. Okay. Um, they are able to form friendships. Mm-hmm. form relationships with their teachers. They can be given a task by their teacher and think, great, I'm going to get into this. Yeah. They can complete the task and they feel, can feel proud of what they've done. Okay. So the last bit's really important because sometimes we that can be an indicator when children um, might not feel proud of what they've done mm-hmm. and throw it in the bin, say it's actually rubbish. Okay. That can give us a signal around that self-esteem. Oh, Okay. So it's the smallest things like that. Yeah. So if a child can't be proud of something that they've achieved, that gives us some clues around their sense of self and their regard for themselves too. Yeah. So, yeah, we can pick up on a lot lot of little things. So when I work with teachers, um, these are the type of things I talk about attachment behaviours. So Mary Ainsworth went and did um, different studies Mm cross-culturally. So she even observed infants in Uganda she was interested not just in that secure base that we can grow for a child, but also in the behaviours that signal to us okay. that are, there's either secure behaviours yeah. or there's the insecure behaviours. 
Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So they're all attachment behaviors. Yeah. Um, so something I work with teachers a lot around is helping them learn these signals. Yeah. Because that helps us translate the behaviors. Okay. So an attention seeking or a clinging or a needing child, mm -hmm. those behaviors might be telling us something about their sense of security. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So instead of it being annoying, knowing what it could be telling us mm -hmm. can sometimes help us be more patient in that moment. Okay. I recently um, was asked to be part of a police operation. I feel like I might be the first play therapist as part of a police operation. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> and part of that is about youth crime. Yeah. Um, and a hotspot in the area where I live where yeah. youth come together um, and people in the community being worried about it. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, hearing all of the stories, we're talking about stories and narratives yeah. from the local area, yeah. I was kind of able to reframe a bit of that and kind of say, I wonder what these behaviours are telling us. Mm -hmm. Are these behaviours telling us that these teenagers have a good sense of self-esteem? Are they telling us that they're looking for relationships? They might not be looking for them in the right places, but they mm -hmm. actually have a need for trusting relationships for people that care about them and want to spend time with them. Yeah. Okay. okay. So we started to unpick it in that oh, way. Wow. Okay. So relationships and behaviours in relationships mm -hmm. are all attachment information. And so when we observe and try and translate it, it mm -hmm. can help us think about how do we meet that need in a way that means they're not going to be seeking it mm -hmm. in a insecure attachment behaviour method. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, okay. I also like to say that the insecure behaviours can sometimes get louder if we don't hear them. So behaviours can escalate. Okay. We might start off with... Um, bullying behaviours mm -hmm. and it might end up with um, crime yeah. or promiscuity or stealing cars, whatever it is. The behaviours yeah. get louder until someone says, we're going to help you stop okay. and we're going to keep you safe and secure yeah. and we're going to try and support you because mm -hmm. we see that things aren't okay for you. Things are tough. Yeah. Okay. You might not have a home. You might be in out-of-home care. You might have had some real complexities in life and we want to support you. Yeah. Oh, wow. So when it comes to just the parent's way of sort of understanding um, whether the child is secure or insecure, is there sort of the type of language that they would use that would sort of, sort of promote them, the child having a secure attachment. Like, for example, I think you said earlier when the child fell down and hurt his knee and then the parent, the mom is, the parent is like, okay, oh, you hurt your knee? Oh, that's so bad. How do you, like, okay, you're fine now. We can, are you, okay, we can cry about it now and then we can go and play a little bit later. Is there a sort of type of linger, a sort of language that would be used that can sort of either promote secure or insecure attachments? Yes. Definitely. Okay. There's a lot of complexity in the insecure or secure. Mm -hmm. um, but if we think about promoting security, mm -hmm. um, first and foremost, I think if we can actually um, be able to be available and responsive, like responsive to the need in the moment as a yep. parent, sometimes that means we see something happening and so therefore we can respond. Okay. Um, so our presence or the presence that we can provide as much as possible uh, is really powerful. Okay. So just observing, trying to tune in. Mm -hmm. In play therapy, we call it attunement. 
We're trying to attune okay. to the child. Yeah. It sounds simple, but it's actually really powerful. Yeah. Certain things that we do can ramp up our attunement. So um, our tone of voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of neuroscience research, particularly by people such as Dr. Stephen Porges, around uh, the protozoic vocal tones of our voice. Okay. Um, we all know that time where someone has maybe said something sternly to us mm-hmm. um, or even shouted and we might have really been afraid or kind of like switched off and cowered away or, you know. Yeah. And then we can think about the the... like nursery rhymes and song that we feel really connected with people. Okay. So again, there's this intuition in our parenting of nursery rhymes at playgroup, Mm -hmm. like ring a ring a rosy, pocket full of posy, um, doing that with the child or this little piggy. Mm -hmm. They're actually attachment style play games. Oh. So our tone of voice, our proximity, we're close, right? Say for this little piggy, we're close because we've got to touch those toes. Yeah. We're face to face. We're kind of in a relationship where they might be, we might be talking to them and they might be smiling back at us. Yeah. So there's the serve and the return messages in the relationship. So these are ways that we create and foster a secure sense of attachment within our play and relationships. Yeah. So being present. Mm -hmm thinking about our tone of voice, thinking about our body language and where we sit. If Mm -hmm. we sit high up on a chair and the child's down on the floor and they're tiny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's a big height difference. I often notice that once I work with teachers, they they seem to sit down or crouch down more because there's a really big height difference and getting on that same level Mm -hmm. is actually a a way of really tuning in in a relationship and being much more present together. Wow. So there's lots when you like, yeah. I'm literally scraping the surface yeah. of a few examples. Okay. There's also a lot of attachment play that we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really any type of reciprocity back and forth play. Yeah. So um, things like peekaboo. Okay. Is the original attachment play because oh. the parent's going away. Yeah. And then they're coming back. Yeah. And they're going away and they're coming back. And the child learns that. They'll always be there. They've got their back. Yeah. They're not going away forever. Okay. Oh, I'm getting it now. Okay. Then that makes a lot of sense. Hide and seek's the same. Yeah. Am I worth being found? Yeah. I saw a movie recently where they weren't finding the child and I was a little bit concerned. (laughs) That was the game. I was like, I feel like that could be an insecure attachment message. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So hide and seek, peekaboo. Um, anything, um, for older children, Yeah. even things like, you know, like throwing a baseball back and forth to each other or kicking a soccer ball back and forth to each other. It's like serve and return. We're looking at each other. Yeah. We're trying to tune into where your foot's going to go or where your arm's going to go. We're trying to respond and then we're trying to reciprocate and repeat. So the thing about instilling a secure sense of attachment is repetition Mm -hmm. over a long period of time. Okay consistently. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes an internalized part of the child that mm-hmm. is just who they are. Okay. So sometimes children may not cognitively name this stuff or think about this stuff yeah. because that's actually a really adult thing to do. Yeah. Um, the cortical parts of our brain don't fully mature until 25 years. So for a child, they're really tapping into the play and the relationships in the lower regions of their brain. Mm -hmm. So when we ask them how that feels or what that was like, sometimes it can be they're like, 
I don't know how it felt. Oh, wow. Okay. But when we try and tune in and go, you had a huge smile on your face. You really like playing with the ball. Okay. We're trying to help them name their emotions and we're trying to also show them that we're interested in, that we're trying to get to know them and figure out what they're feeling with them. Yeah. So that sense of empathy Mm -hmm. grows empathy in others. Mm -hmm. So when we wish a child to be regulated in their emotions, we first have to co-regulate them. Okay. So when it comes to that, I think like I'm sort of relating it to a little bit of validation as well Mm. on the parents and just sort of validating their emotions in a positive sense, being like, oh yeah, I know that you're, see that you're smiling and it's noticing things that they can't label that, as as you said. How do you turn it into them sort of, is it with age that they sort of realize that they're validating themselves as well? Or is it just them, you constantly having to give them that validation? I think it's a combination of both. Okay. Um, Often in the school age years, people talk about emotional literacy. Yeah. So teaching people what happiness is. Okay. It's different to actually being empathic with a child in a moment where they're genuinely feeling happy. Mm -hmm. And both can be useful when we think about the way we learn. Yeah. But when we learn deeply about what our authentic, genuine states of emotions are, Mm -hmm. someone else helping us see it or feel it as part of us learning, oh, that's what I that's what I feel like when I'm happy. That's what I look like when I'm happy. That's what other people see when I'm happy. Okay. That's actually the that growing emotional literacy in real time. And yes, over the ch- over childhood that benefits from being supported for quite a period of time. Mm-hmm. Having said that, when I um when I worked with teachers during my PhD research, mm-hmm. um I was I designed an approach called the Teacher's Optimal Relationship Approach where teachers were trained in specific um, knowledge and skills. Okay. And a lot of it is based around attachment theory and neuroscience and play. Um, What I found was when teachers were being empathic or when they were validating, over time in my observations, I also heard children doing it for other children. Oh, wow. So when we're role modelling... Yeah. So modeling is a powerful teaching agent. Mm-hmm. And when when we as adults feel we have some skills to be able to model in a really ideal way, mm-hmm. then that can be really transmitted. Okay. As can vice versa. Yeah. So when, when um, more difficult attachment relationship models such as family violence are role modeled, mm-hmm. then we might also see some more po- problematic or difficult relationship dynamics coming out in those childhood years too. Now, looking in some of the challenges that and obstacles that parents may face, what are some of the common ones when trying to establish or maintain secure attachments? Maybe we start with establishing. Okay. I think sometimes uh, common challenges might be there may have been a difficult birth. Yeah. There may be separation after birth. Um, the one parent may not be available or very well. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're thinking about anything that disrupts the time spent together mm-hmm. and the uh, um, capacity of the parents to be really present and available. Mm-hmm. So things like postnatal depression in either parent okay. can impact on a sense of security and attachment. Mm-hmm. So again, it's being able to pick up and notice these things either in ourselves or our partners or 
some professional or person support us to notice yeah. to um, make whatever changes are needed um, or to tap into the supports that might help us. Okay. Um, and I think this can kind of be translated across childhood too mm-hmm. because then we think about um, things like if there is going to be a separation with a family due to separation or divorce, yeah. um, you know, how can that be done in the most ideal way? Okay. Um, so that's really complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often work with both parts of the family system when I do that type of work okay. because the more consistent and on the same page we can be in our parenting, the more consistent the secure attachment messaging can be for the child. Okay. So when it comes to, for example, um, the way that the baby cries and, mm. for example, some people, some parents would prefer being teaching their child to self-soothe, mm-hmm. whereas another parent would be oh, immediately running over mm-hmm. to to the child. Does that sort of establish a different relationship when it comes to um, the connection with the parent and also how they sort of, how the child really sees what attachment is and what being secure in themselves is? And is there a difference between self-soothing and, you know, immediately going up to the child and just being there as soon as they start crying? Yeah, I, I think that where I think the pace of the relationship okay. is important in attachment, that we're kind of tuning into the needs of the child and their pace. So how much can they tolerate? Okay. Do we swoop in to prevent the distress too quickly or do we actually wait for a sign of distress or are we going, okay, are they hungry? Uh, are they uncomfortable? We're trying to figure it out as opposed to just pacify it. Yeah. So there is some nuance in that. Yeah. Um, But I think um, when a child has breached their level of tolerance, they might be becoming quite dysregulated and very upset. Okay. Then that's probably a very clear signal for us to be able to step in and soothe. Okay. Um, There have been lots of different sleep settling and different things along the way that neuroscience has informed Mm -hmm. um, practices now that are helping a child not be in a state of distress for prolonged periods of time. Mm -hmm. So if children are in a state of distress for a long period of time or even infinitely if they're living in situations of deprivation or abuse and neglect, then toxic stress can actually change and inform the way that they're whole bodies are functioning. It can impact on their immune system. It can impact on their neural network wiring as their brain is in development. Yeah. Okay. So we do want to think about how we prevent prolonged periods of stress happening, Mm -hmm. but also how do we allow for a a child to feel different emotions and be responded to? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that... No, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. No, it does make sense. <laughs> it's no, complex. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's really hard to sort of determine. I think mm. every parent, I think it also counts like parenting style as well, how they want to raise their child and mm-hmm. usually not, no two parents are usually on the same page when it comes to that. I had two completely different parenting figures in my childhood. One was a little bit of a more authoritarian yep. kind of parent and one was a, oh, it's a whatever happens, happens kind of parent. Yep. So <laughs> so opposite. Yeah. One would freak out if I broke a vase. One would be like, that's oh, fine. We'll go buy another one. Yeah. So there's two completely different ways of parenting that my parents sort of 
put me on and then yeah it was a very it's a very different relationship with them now I will say but yeah. what are the challenges that was sort of happened to maintain that secure attachment I think we can't prevent children from experiencing difficulties yeah or adversities but I think we can try and continually provide as best that we can yeah secure attachment messages okay and they are I like you, I love you, I want to be with you, mm-hmm. I want to care for you, I want us to be in a relationship together. These are the types of messages we're wanting to convey. Yeah. So, for example, there's um, there's a whole um, strand of parenting around giving children timeouts, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. when they're dysregulated or when they need to be on the naughty step or whatever, okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, Dr. Dan Siegel is a uh, interpersonal neurobiologist, and he actually uh, coined the term of time in. So instead okay. of disconnection, mm-hmm. in order to soothe and help a child understand a difficult moment, that we're actually going for connection. Okay. So it's yeah. there's some quite interesting things that are coming out of neuroscience based on what we know about adversity, mm-hmm. what we know about how experiences change and alter us at a neurobiological level. Okay. Um, and this can inform um, parenting practices. And just like the nuances of attachment styles, there's a parenting styles as well. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, a lot of the science is coming back to reinforcing some of that intuition around that um, authoritative mm-hmm. um, style of um having um, loving boundaries, yeah. um, being able to be patient and tuned into our children. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of parenting programs that are backed by science that, you know, I think one of them is calling tuning into kids. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a lot of science now around um, parenting. Mm-hmm. And so as parents, you know, sometimes it can be about doing a little bit of a um, think about ourselves. And part of... Yeah. Becoming a parent might be, just as you've talked about, it can make us reflect on our own experience of being parented. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sometimes it can also make us reflect on our parents' experience of being parented. Yeah. Right? Okay. And then we can also think about what does that mean for me as a parent? What do I believe in or what messages do I want to try and consistently give? And then you've got your partner's whole history too. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of pulling those together and going how do we do this together? Yep. Okay. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think it's a lot, there's a lot of discussion that probably needs to happen right when in conception talking about, okay, how do we want to deal with this? How much of a connection do we want? Do we want to be this type of parent or this kind of parent? What kind of things do you want to teach a child? Because I think a lot of, I mean, I, lo- I know a lot of my friends have, some insecurities as well. And I think mm-hmm. when I'm having conversations with them, they're like, I'm scared that I'm going to be that kind of parent that pushes their own insecurities onto their child. And it, that that can happen as well from personal experiences as well. Sort of like, okay, I'm scared of this, which means that my child is not going to go near swings, for example, because I'm scared of how <laughs> swings would happen and things like that. So yeah. there is that sort of pass down of insecurities that can affect a child's insecure development as well. Yeah. And sometimes 
when we identify them, yeah, um, it can help us um, steer us on another path. Okay. So even us being able to validate it for ourselves, yeah, can actually help us change the way we transmit things. Okay. And we might actually go, well, I'm really afraid of heights, but I don't want my child to be afraid of heights. Yeah. Or is my, my is my partner not afraid of heights and how can they perhaps do that bit if I can't do that bit? Okay. So, you know, even say like your friends being able to say, I have some insecurities, but knowing they have insecurities, mm-hmm. being aware of those mm-hmm. is like almost the first step. Okay. Um, for play therapists, we actually have to have our own personal therapy as part of our training. So oh. we kind of have to do a deep dive into our own attachment histories, mm-hmm. our own stuff, as okay. we sometimes call it. Yeah. Um, and so that I think very much if parents are kind of feeling like or parents-to-be are feeling like, I don't want to do that, yeah. I don't want to give my child this or I don't, I perhaps want to parent in a different way, yeah. I think being able to, where possible, tap into support to think about that and talk about it and make some plans or reflect on it Mm -hmm. as early as possible is perhaps as important as attending a birthing class. Okay. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Just being at least noticing some of the insecurities that you hold. Yeah. And talking about that sort of releases some of the stress, I guess, against the, okay, what if my child ends up being like this or being exactly like me? Yeah. So, no, I think that's, I think holding a priority, I think that's great advice as well to sort of make that a priority along with going to birthing classes, just trying to understand how they are insecure and how they have attachment style, their attachment sequence as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's for both partners Mm -hmm. and they might want to spend some time doing some their own reflection or get some support to do that reflection. But they can also have those, you know, Maybe as well as going to that birthing class each week together or each two yeah. weeks, they might also say, why don't we go for a coffee and why don't we talk about our childhoods or tell me about this this, or let's talk about a topic that we're worried about or yeah. and just even starting that open dialogue and investing in that time of trying to um, understand our partners and mm-hmm. um, where we're meeting with them in order to parent together. Okay. And I know that you've listed some experts throughout the show. Oh, yeah. But do you have any resources that parents can sort of, parents or caregivers can sort of be interested in and look into a little bit more about attachment style and understanding it themselves as well? Yeah, I I have um, two books that I always recommend to parents. Okay. And they're actually both authored or co-authored by Dr. Daniel Siegel, who I have mentioned already. Yeah. Um, and one is called The Whole Brain Child. Okay. And one is called Brainstorm. And Brainstorm is written for parents preparing to have teenagers. Okay. And it's also written for teenagers when they're ready to read it themselves as well about some insights into self. It's got some comics in it. Okay. And so those two are my go-to recommendations. Okay. The other one I've really resonated with recently, and I think I mentioned Gabor Mate at the start, was um, Gordon Neufeld from Russia and Gabor Mate. Um, from North America came together to write a book called um, Hold On To Our Kids or Your Kids. Um, (laughs) And it's about thinking about the teenagers in a different way that, um, yes, we are preparing to launch them into adulthood, Mm -hmm. but we haven't launched them yet. Yep. Um, And when we know what we know about neuroscience, preparing parents 
to help children with that really big um, pruning back of the rose bush analogy mm-hmm. of the brain and the big regrowth into adulthood that can look very much like some of the brain changes that happen in the toddler years. Okay. So preparing parents and informing parents can mean that um, we view the teenage years in a different way. Mm-hmm. We're viewing about connection, time spent together, yeah. um, as opposed to they're little adults, they're ready to go. Yeah. So that book's really um, uh, connected with me, I think, in that way. Um, in terms of other um, resources, I would always recommend filial therapy as a resource for parents that may feel they want to learn something in a supported way with a, a therapist that's trained to work with children of all ages mm-hmm. um, and that they will not only learn um, different parts about attachment, but they'll also be able to practice real skills that they can really apply into their everyday lives Okay, uh, in a supported way. Yeah. So that's always my one of my big go-to recommendations. Yeah. It's also got, um, you know, it was created in 1960 by... Um, Bernard and Louise Gurney, the Gurneys. Mm-hmm. It's got some of the most robust evidence base for parenting work out there. Okay. Um, so it's a really strong way of um, working with families that may indicate that they're ready for something. And sometimes doing that before things are really complex. Sometimes mm-hmm. if we can get in earlier mm-hmm. um, or families say, I'd love parents to be able to do that as part of their transition to parenthood. Okay. Well, that's a great resource, actually. I think philotherapy is something that um, we've spoken about on the show and it's going to be, it sounds like an amazing pathway Mm. to sort of understanding how each family dynamic would work as well and sort of a bit more in-depth rather than just sitting down and doing family therapy. That's a whole other ballgame as well and a lot more interactive and I think good for any age. As well. It is. It's inclusive of all ages. It's um, primarily play-based mm-hmm. for children. Yeah. Um, and it is individualised to the family. Okay. Um, so it means it can be flexible and adaptive to families' needs. It's actually a, a model that works can work quite well on telehealth. Okay. And so uh, that was actually something I was doing before the pandemic. So oh, wow. it meant come the pandemic... It was actually a really safe and appropriate way of working with children and families online too. Yeah. No, that sounds that sounds incredible. And yeah. I'm actually really interested about the book as well when it comes to don't hold your children. Don't hold on to, uh, no, no, it's about holding on to your kids. Oh, hold on to your children. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. That sounds really interesting because it's, it's very true in the fact that, okay, yes, they're teenagers and going into adulthood, but they're not adults. And I think like, especially when um, growing up, I think my parents were very much like, okay, you're still not, an, you're 18, you're still not an adult yet. Whereas a lot of my friends, they were like, oh, you're 18 now, it's fine, go do what, go do whatever you want. <laughs> so there was a very different rule, set of rules when it comes to my friends and my parents and how they were, so their expectations were still there for me. So, yeah. so like, okay, you're still under my roof, you're still a child. <laughs> And, you know, maybe they had some level of intuition around brain development mm-hmm. um, because I think it can be a shock to some people to realise that, that that is the brain is still maturing to 25 years of age. Yeah. So that is actually quite a bit into your 20s where we're still learning about um, how we navigate the world ourselves. Yeah. 
damn it, my brain has now grown. <laughs> Age 25, it's done. It's still malleable and has potential for growth. Yes. Okay. I would love to, I would love to like that, <laughs> to agree with that. Now, to finalize, what would be the key message to parents and to our listeners that they would like to take away regarding the development of secure and insecure attachment? I think that the key message for me is that our sense of attachment with ourselves and others is lifelong Mm -hmm. and that we can always be um, firming that up and making it as strong and robust in ourselves and others. Mm -hmm. And so investing in that in ourselves and our children Mm -hmm. is quite a lovely resource. It's a relational resource um, that we can do through playing Jenga together. Okay. Okay. So it doesn't have to be an expensive resource being in a relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we harness the power of relationships as um, a a very potent way of um, establishing and maintaining security in our sense of attachment, Mm -hmm. then I think that's a really vital message for us all. Yeah. And that adversity will happen happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. We can't protect everyone in the world from experiencing difficulties. Mm -hmm. Um, Trauma um, is not just what happens to us, but it's how we experience that trauma and it's how we're supported through that trauma Mm -hmm. and it's how we heal from anything that we may find traumatic. Okay. So the supports in the relationship um, after something that's occurred that a child has perhaps indicated they've experienced as traumatic or adversity, yep. that's where we've got our opportunity to heal and support that. Okay. So again, we've got a lot of potential to heal adversity mm-hmm. through relationships and it's okay to be good enough. And I loved you were talking about that idea that sounds like lots of people that have come on the podcast, which is great because it is a parenting podcast, yep. have resonated with um, Donald Winnicott's term, good enough parents. Mm-hmm. And there's a nice synergy there because something he did back in the 50s and 60s was have a radio show mm-hmm. to be able to tell parents that it's actually okay to not feel like you know everything about parenting. Oh, wow. And okay. these are some things that we've started to learn yeah. that you could try. Yeah. And so he was one of the people that contributed to attachment theory as well. Oh, wow. So there's some nice kind of full circle here yeah. coming back talking on a podcast, which is kind of like a radio kind show. Kind of like a radio, yeah. yeah. No, I would count that. Um, and so you're sharing kind of, these stories and narratives in order to support parents make sense of their parenting journey. Yeah. Um, and maybe provide some takeaways that might assist them in the future. And that was very much the concept of the good enough parent. That's really the heart and soul of that. So remembering that even on our hardest days, yeah. holding on to that is my best advice. Yeah. No, I love I loved listening to, to listening about him and talking about a lot of his beliefs because I think it's such a true way of I think we hype up the idea of being a parent so much being like okay you have to be the perfect parent you have to always be there for a child and reality is that it doesn't always work out like that nope (laughs) and the same with the child as well being a perfect child being always talking with the parent always discussing things with the parent sometimes everything's good is the answer that teenager always gives out. Yeah. And I think I gave that out throughout my whole teenage life as well. So there is, <laughs> there is that. Yeah. And it's that kind of that patience and that, that trust 
that it's okay to sometimes not always get it right, but know that we'll still keep trying to connect in our relationship. Yeah. I think that's the essence of it. A teenager might be able to say, I'm all right, everything's all right for 10 years and that's okay. Mm -hmm. That might be what they can manage at the time. Yeah. Um, But it might not be the way they communicate forever. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's that's such a great way. It's just sort of like a big message to the show. It's good enough parent. It's exactly the parent that you should aim to be. <laughs> and I think um, I actually talk about it with teachers as the good enough teacher because, yeah. you know, teachers as secondary attachment figures, they face many of the same worries or concerns or, you know, grappling with things or thinking back over, did I do the right thing in that moment? Mm-hmm. How could I do it differently? Um and that reassurance, that validation that you get from yeah. that term good enough parent, good enough teacher, it's kind of like, oh, it kind of allows for a breath and to go, okay, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. This is good enough. And if I feel that I could improve on things, then I can try and in- integrate that mm-hmm. next time. Exactly. No, I think that we talk about the perfect ideal world as if it's everything is always okay. Mm. So yeah, I think I hear a lot about the whole perfect parent being the perfect. Wow. I feel like all the utopian films and novels always end quite badly. No, yeah. Not the way that you want to end. I mean, (laughs) I saw Don't Worry Darling far too many times. So (laughs) yeah, that was, um, I watched that on a plane while very jet lagged, which I would not recommend. It was very um, trippy, but it did not give me the sense of there was good enough things going on there. No. So we know, and that's a great point, like we kind of know when things aren't okay. Mm-hmm. We get a sense when things aren't good enough. Yeah. Or children's behaviour might tell us. Exactly. Yeah, they might yeah. be communicating, actually, I need more support. Mm-hmm. Or the people that are my support team, they could benefit from more support because I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. So again, um, I always say that the children I work with are some of my greatest teachers. Um, and the baby that I observed was definitely one of my greatest teachers in terms of attachment. Yeah. And we can learn so much if we tune in mm-hmm. and try and hear how children are doing, really doing in terms yep. of themselves and their relationship with others. Okay. No, that's a really, that's a really great point. Now we're going to go on to our practice and habit part mm. of the show, talking about some of your own practices that you try to try to do on a daily basis or at least a regular basis. Now, what's a practice that you do to motivate yourself to find that balance of autonomy between what is supposed to happen and what you want to do? Um, Interestingly, uh, it does make me think about my learnings from Donald Winnicott, so not just the good enough but also the be with, join with and do with. Okay. So being, joining and doing. And for me in relationships, I usually comes back to those three things. They kind of guide me a little bit in terms of my own practice. So um, how much can I set aside the hustle and bustle of the day Mm -hmm. to be with people Whether that's my own children, whether that's a partner, whether that's a friend at coffee, Mm -hmm. how do we at times put away our distractions um, and fully be present? Mm -hmm. How can we join with them? So is there something we can uh, join with them and do with them? So um, might we 
go for a walk together while we talk or yeah. are we playing a board game or could we even just sit and watch film together and have a cuddle mm-hmm. but we're kind of joining with them in our relationship yeah so those three things I think they're kind of tethers that I come back to um, in my practice okay and what are some three could you name some three positives or benefits of just trying to find the balance between all three of them Um, I think three good things is being able to really think about and be mindful of myself in relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter which person that is, a child or an adult. Yeah. Um, I think that mindfulness is something, and that's different mindfulness than when we do meditating mindfulness. Um, but, um, uh, mind-mindedness is when we're thinking about ourselves in connection to another person. So I think being with and trying to join or do with mm-hmm. prompts us to think about ourselves in connection to another person. And that thinking of ourselves in connection to another person, mm-hmm. if we're doing that while we're doing, say, a board game with a child, mm-hmm. um, neuroscience has shown that the region in the brain lights up the same in both of the brains when we're really synced up. Okay. So for me, that's a really big benefit. Yeah. So knowing these benefits are not just relational, that they're physiological Mm -hmm. um, and that they have huge impacts potentially for myself and the people in my life or the children and families I work with professionally. Okay. Um, I think that's a real benefit. Okay. And so in contrast to that, what mm. would be a challenge that you sort of face when trying to go through the practice? I think a huge challenge is the complex lives that we live, mm-hmm. um, the, the potentially um, differing demands that are placed on parents from lots of different angles. Okay. So carving out the time Mm -hmm. and thinking about it not having to be all day every day, um, but even being able to be mindful for with a child in a state of play or presence, you know, even for three minutes or 10 minutes. Yeah. Thinking about those moments um, being incorporated into your schedule. I think scheduling can be a challenge. Mm -hmm physical presence and emotional and mental presence where we're not doing a shopping list at the same time. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And our challenge is to um, be kind to ourselves too Mm -hmm. and say, okay, I noticed I'm doing the shopping list and I'm meant to be playing Jenga. Yeah. I'm just going to park the shopping list Mm -hmm. and then recenter on this. Yeah. So I think, I actually think most of the challenges at the moment in our modern lives come back to distractions. Yep. No, that's um, a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Distractions and competing demands. Yeah. No, I think it's it's a really, we say it's a really good thing that we can multitask. It is also a really bad thing <laughs> because somehow we're like ending up, we're meant to be doing one thing. We're like, oh, okay. I can also like fold laundry when I'm supposed to be talking, uh, like talking to a child. Like I see a lot of my friends and I do that with my family as well. Like I'm working while I'm hanging out with my sister mm-hmm. or I'm uh, doing something, replying to messages 
while I'm meant to be having family movie night or family board game night or something like that. Mm. And I'm never, I'm never a hundred percent present mm. at any given time. Like you see me now, I'm also like typing notes while I'm talking to you and sort of balancing the two. Yeah. So there's also like that idea of, okay, yes, we could manage everything, mm. but should we be able to manage everything if we can't really be present in that certain so that's also that yes it's our superpower Mm. but at the same time it's also the biggest weakness that we have yeah and there's two potential knock-on effects there's the knock-on effect of what's the cognitive and emotional load of the person that is juggling yeah and how long can that be sustained exactly um and there's also um the the children are actually super tuned in to us as adults Um, And they'll call us out if we're not actively like if we miss a turn and you know because we're sending a message. They'll be like, you missed your turn. Like it's your turn. You know, they actually know um, when we are splitting our attention. Yeah. So they're pretty good at keeping us honest. So, again, we can take a lot from them when they're – and, you know, for a baby they might just – the cry might get louder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we're leaving them to self-soothe while um, we do washing and reply to emails. And at what point does that switch over to that being beyond their tolerance and it yeah. becoming really more stressful for them? Yeah. Also a habitual thing as well, where it's, sort of like it's more than once, one occasion where that's happened, this sort of affects their attachment as well and their security yep. in that you're always being there for them despite what you say that you always be there for them so yeah yeah no that's a big that's a big one so it's that difference between talking the talk and walking the walk yeah so um and as you said that how often it happens when we talked before about how we create security and attachment is through the repetition over a long period of time yeah and also how we heal attachment difficulties or disruptions or insecurities is also the positive repetition over time. Yeah. So none of this is a quick fix. But it's also, as you said, there's a slippery slope of how many times can I be distracted? Mm-hmm. That then that becomes more of the regular of the repetition. Oh, so it changes the whole idea of what being given attention yes. is and being present is for them. Yes. As well. And there's a whole school of kind of research happening now around distracted parenting okay. and how that is connected to potential attachment patterning mm-hmm. and the laying down of those patterns that form either secure or insecure sense okay. um, or how it can change if this is a new practice by the parent or caregiver. Oh, wow. Okay. No, that's a that's a really big thing to sort of look into, especially mm-hmm. if it's an ongoing thing. They're sort of like, okay, that's the new normal. Yep. That's how it's – so it's very diff- different if they sort of receive – full attention and they were like oh wow that's not what they're used to I guess as well yeah and um sometimes children might um good example is a child that might not be used to that might come into the play therapy room and go and hide like hide and seek oh, okay you, they have to kind of modulate and titrate how much of it they can cope with and yeah. build that up over time to then be sitting with you ah, at the table okay. drawing something. Yeah. But they might not have been able to walk into that straight away because that's okay. not their relational patterning. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, that's really interesting. How the brain works, especially how a child's brain works, is really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So now we're going to move on to our open mic section, which is my favourite section because it gets to talk about the guests' interests and got to know a little bit more about you as well. So I know that 
um, what it says, it gets to share a certain topic with you, sort of um, anything that you feel we missed out on talking about today or that you want to discuss even further or maybe just something you want to promote. So in the last like minute or so, I'd love to give you the floor and we get to talk about that a little bit more and something that's on your mind for today. I think the biggest thing on my mind at the moment is thinking about play and relationships in the everyday, mm-hmm. that it doesn't necessarily have to be um, complex, that actually thinking about play being the language of children yeah. and us as adults reconnecting yeah. with the kingdom of childhood. Yeah, I'm really quite interested in, um, you know, some of the Australian studies that have come out recently from the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne that are saying, you know, up to 60% of ch- parents mm-hmm. don't feel confident playing with their own children wow. or may not know how to and therefore aren't as much as they'd like to. So for me, I'm quite interested in, as a play therapist, yeah. how can um, play therapists potentially support not just children that may have experienced difficulties or not just families that are um, having some struggles or adversities, mm-hmm. but how this type of um, knowledge can be applicable to every person. Okay. Wow. So, and um, for, for me, with my work with teachers using Torah, the Teacher's Optimal Relationship Approach, okay. um, that's kind of my really big focus at the moment um, to really think about um, how we work um, and play mm-hmm. with children every day in okay. all places that we find children. And that's why, you know, coming in and chatting with you, mm-hmm. I think is really important to um, be able to provide a play therapist perspective on attachment. Yep. And um, we are a bit of a rare species play therapist. We're a new and emerging profession in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so knowing that, you know, people could reach out to a play therapist to say, actually, we might like to learn more about play, mm-hmm. just everyday play, yep. because there's a lot to learn about play. We often think we know what play is as adults, but mm-hmm. when we get down to the definition of play and non-play, mm-hmm. it's actually quite complex. Yeah, There's different play that children engage with at different points in their development and parents knowing about that and educators knowing about that mm-hmm. can be another way of connecting in the relationship. Okay. No, yeah. No, I love I love the fact that we were able to talk about it because I think it's such an interesting, like you said, it's new and emerging. Um, I didn't hear about it until I heard about art therapy and then I sort of heard about consecutively about play therapy and yeah. the different ways that um, that you get to connect with children and children get to really be observed in a way that they're not, really some of them aren't really used to being observed in that way as well so yeah I love I love being able to talk about this and ask so many questions I apologize if some of the questions I ask aren't really as um knowledgeable as as I thought I would be no it's been really enjoyable and I think even just having opportunities to talk about these questions and you think about or questions organically that come up along the way I think Um, that's a real strength of thinking about these topics in a real world way. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. Good. I'm glad you saw it that way. (laughs) No, it was really interesting because I didn't really know a lot about how you would go about like, okay, you just like give a kid a toy and you sort of sit there and observe it, but there's a lot more to it than that when them 
organically playing and organically trying to understand how they perceive their own emotions as well throughout it. So, no, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been amazing actually talking about this and asking so many different questions in so many different ways between secure attachment, insecure attachment and the different resources that you are sharing as well. You're welcome. It's been a real pleasure. I often, um, when I work with university students, I often joke that I could literally talk about attachment for days. So coming in this afternoon is a real pleasure for me too. Now, if there's a way that um, audience members would like to get in touch with you to talk about play therapy a little bit more, to talk about maybe secure and insecure attachment, or maybe ask questions that I didn't get to at mm-hmm. that point, is there a way that they are able to reach out to you? Yeah, so probably the best way my private practice play in filial therapy okay. uh, is probably the best way and whether you'll be able to share those details of mm-hmm. um, the, the different social. I often find parents might send me an email after they've connected with me on social media. Um, so my private practice has a Facebook page and Instagram page and um, LinkedIn. So I think that's probably the best way to reach out as well. Mm-hmm. And I am mindful of making sure I'm sharing things that parents also might resonate with and learn with along the way um, mm-hmm. in that journey as well. If they're interested in play or they're interested in um, thinking about their relationships uh, in this way, mm-hmm. then they might um, connect in that way too. Oh, perfect. Well, I'll definitely have the link to your, your website, your Instagram page as well, down below in the show notes for easy access for audience. Cause I think we definitely need to share this a little bit more, especially being based in Melbourne. I think it's, it's really interesting to sort of see how popular it is in Australia as well. I think I've got, um, a few other play therapists sort of coming up in next upcoming episodes as well. Mm. So yeah, to talk about it, I think it's a really interesting new way of trying to understand a child rather than, okay, you like I said, sit down, talk about a therapy. So no, I think um, I love absolutely everything that we spoke about today. And I hope that um, I answered, I hope that we answered a lot of the questions that some of the audience may have on play therapy. Yeah, maybe a start point of yes. learning a little bit about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, like, thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.